Well, 2,000 years ago in the Grecian city of Thessalonica, the Christian church had been duped by false teaching. Apparently, they had received a letter, (coughs) a letter falsely purporting to be from the Apostle Paul, teaching that the final day of the Lord had already come. It had already arrived. But there were a couple of telltale signs that the letter was actually a fake. It lacked Paul's well-known handwriting and signature, which is why in 2 Thessalonians 3.17, Paul draws his readers' attention to those very things. He writes, I, Paul, write this reading in my own hand, which is the distinguishing mark in all my letters. This is how I write. The letter the Thessalonian church had received evidently lacked those two things, and its false teaching caused a lot of damage. Based on its content, some people in the church were worried that the day of the Lord had already come, that there was no need for a personal return of Jesus Christ or his final judgment or his visibly triumphant reign. The letter claimed, this is it. This is all there is. Jesus has returned in in some spiritual sense, and now we're living out our lives in the full-blown, consummated kingdom of God. And people were upset, understandably, because if this is as good as it gets, I mean, talk about a gospel-destroying, wretched eternity. This is what God has ultimately accomplished in the death and resurrection of his son for sin. Faith was shaken. The church's understanding of how this fallen world ends and of what it would be like in the new heavens and new earth, as well as the events that Paul had personally taught the Thessalonians, had to transpire before the Lord returned. Uh, It had all been corrupted by false teaching. Verse 1 of the text. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us, whether by a prophecy or by word of mouth or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. And Paul's purpose in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, that's our text, is to explain why, why the day of the Lord cannot have occurred yet, while at the same time giving a stern warning against being deceived by false teachers. So let me say at the outset, no matter what we may believe about the timeline of Christ's return, uh, if certain events must transpire first, or if we believe Jesus could return in the next five minutes, because godly Christians disagree on that, then no matter what we believe, we must also not be deceived by false teaching, teaching that looks to make a shipwreck of our faith. That's the main point that Paul's driving home. So let me qualify everything I'm about to say. Jesus is returning, but he hasn't returned yet. Jesus will judge the living and the dead in righteousness, and there is an eternal resurrection life to be gained, and there is an eternal hell to be shunned. Satan will be utterly defeated. And those are all teachings that all Christians must believe, or we're not true Christians at all in any biblical sense of the word. And where there but where there can be legitimate disagreement amongst brothers and sisters is around the timing and around the order of events surrounding those same incontestable biblical facts. People disagree. And of course, what Christians believe about the particulars, the details of the last days and the return of Christ, must always be informed by biblical texts. And not just one standalone text, but the whole counsel of God as all the texts of Scripture fit together, as they cohere. And so I'm excited to teach this passage this morning, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, because it seems to me that this is a forgotten text. Uh, Texts like the Olivet Discourse, Mark 13, Luke 21, 
Matthew 24, Revelation 20, those passages come up all the times in conversations about Jesus' return, but not 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And Paul writes in verse 3 of that chapter, don't let anyone deceive you in any way. For that day, the day of the Lord, the return of Jesus, the day of God's victory over every opponent, and the day when his faithful ones will be rewarded, Paul says that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worship so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Now, however we interpret those verses, it obviously must play some role in our understanding of the timing of the Lord's return, right? We would all agree on that. It has to play some role. Why do you say yes, Pastor John? Okay. <laughs> Personally, I believe the day of the Lord could take place soon, within a fairly brief period of time, but not before the events described in verses 3 and 4 take place. And I say that not because I first belong to a certain interpretive school of eschatology, but because I want to allow this biblical text to speak for itself, even if the truth it proclaims makes me feel very uncomfortable, and it does. <laughs> Let me explain that. Uh, a number of years ago, I was living in Regina. I was uh, getting groceries out of the trunk of my car when two elders, I mean, elders are 20 years old, from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints came walking by, the Mormons, right? Uh, Hello, they said. Would you like to live with your family for all eternity? That's quite the icebreaker, right there on the sidewalk, right? Uh, it was a very domestic-looking scene. I was getting groceries out of the trunk of my car. They, I think they assumed I had a wife and kids. Uh, so I invited them inside to speak. Nothing came of it, unfortunately. But I thought their lead-in question was very interesting. They appealed to my love as a father and as a husband. I could live with my family forever. If I believe the teachings of Joseph Smith. It was... A deceptive, false teaching, but packaged in a way to make it appear very attractive. Now understand me, I'm in no way correlating the heretical teachings of Joseph Smith, which are a complete denial of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm in no way correlating his teachings with different Christian interpretations of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. The point I'm trying to make is this. Isn't it reasonable to believe that in some cases, fear could be a motivating factor in Christians wanting to disbelieve certain hard truths, certain hard texts about the Lord's return. Disbelieving truth out of fear, the opposite of believing false doctrine because it's attractive. Fear of pain, fear of persecution, fear of danger and threat, both to ourselves and to our families. I think if we're being honest, we can say, yeah, that's something we need to overcome. So, brothers and sisters, we all need to be morally prepared for Jesus' return. Whether we believe that could be 10 seconds from now or 10 millennia, but this text today is asking us something else besides. It's warning us. It's warning us of accumulating period of great apostasy in the church before Jesus returns. As many professing Christians are deceived by the false teachings and powerful miracles of the culminating Antichrist figure, the end-time antagonist of the church. And part of the function of this text is to warn Christians against false expectations to the contrary. 
Today, I'm gonna, I just have to get through a lot of stuff, okay? So keep your questions for the end. Lord willing, we'll have time, but I just need to barrel through. So just, just be patient with me. I'm sorry for this. Um, follow along closely. The first reason the Thessalonians should not be misled, and you can see this in your PDF, and that handout at the back is not the PDF. We're going to refer to it later on, though, but you will want that handout at the back. Um, the first reason the Thessalonians should not be misled is because Jesus will not be coming back until first... The rebellion occurs, verse 3, or literally the apostasy. Uh, now, if we call someone an apostate, and that's not just an, a religious term, obviously. We're, but we're saying that they've abandoned, they've renounced their beliefs. An apostate turns away from what they formerly believed to be true. Uh, when a liberal MP crosses the floor to sit with the conservatives, you'll read in the Globe and Mail, oh, they, they apostatized. You know, when a professing Christian becomes a secular materialist, they've apostatized. But if we're going to understand this text, we need to see first how the Bible uses the word apostasy. And I've listed three representative samples in your PDF. Acts 21, 21. This is where the Jerusalem elders are, taking, are talking to Paul about what the non-Christian Jews in Jerusalem thought the apostle was teaching. Acts 21, 21. They have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to Turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. Same word. First Timothy 4.1. The, the Spirit clearly says that in the later time, some will abandon the faith and will follow the deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Hebrews 3.12. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. That's the same word. And this may seem a little pedantic, a little nitpicky, but by definition, the rebellion or apostasy of which Paul speaks in verse 3 cannot be a general, indiscriminate turning away from God by all of humanity. Because turning away assumes some sort of prior turning to God. Does that make sense? One can't apostatize from a position of belief one has never held. Nor can we be born an apostate and then apostatize some more. That's impossible. No, this verse is a reference to professing Christians. And this apostasy, this rebellion of which Paul speaks, of rebellion, and rebellion, by the way, is how this word is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament exclusively. Exclusively. Right? This, this rebellion which will occur primarily in the new covenant community, the church, or more accurately, those Christians and churches who profess to teach and believe the gospel, but who are in fact not saved. This is the professing church on a worldwide scale. They will believe lies, doctrines taught by demons, and turn away from sound teaching. They're going to rebel. They will rebel. And I'll return to that in a little bit, but that's the first thing we need to know. The second reason the Thessalonians must not be misled into believing Jesus has already returned, is because the end-time antagonist of God and his people has yet to appear on the scene. The man of lawlessness, as Paul calls him, or the Antichrist, as John calls him in his first epistle, or the beast from the sea, as he's described in the book of Revelation. The appearance of Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, must precede the return of Jesus. He comes before, he comes first. And there are clear allusions here to Daniel's prediction of an end-time opponent who will bring about a large-scale compromise of faith among God's people. And that's what I had at the back. According to Daniel 11, 30-45, a final enemy of God will attack the covenant community. 
the attack is to take two forms. The first will be a subtle attack of deception by influencing with smooth words some within the community who forsake the Holy Covenant and who act wickedly towards the covenant, Daniel 11.30. All of this stands behind Paul's reference to the apostasy in chapter 2, verse 3. The Antichrist will influence these people to become godless themselves, as Daniel 11.32, fostering deception and compromise among others. Second, the end-time foe will persecute those who remain loyal to God's covenant. This is 11.33-35 and verse 44. This eschatological antagonist will appear openly before the community, quote, and exalt and magnify himself above every god, Daniel 11.36, then meet his final end under God's judicial hand, 11.45. The parallels between Daniel's prophecy and Paul's teaching in chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 are clear. It's not, it's not I would argue, that Paul's saying, I've received special revelation just for you, Thessalonians, about, these, about the, the great apostasy, this rebellion and turning away and the coming of the man of law. So he's saying, no, I'm, I'm going to exegete Daniel to you. That's what's going on here. Verse 3, don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. So there we have Paul's argument to the Thessalonian church. Since these two events have yet to occur, Jesus certainly has not returned. That's, that's where he's going with this. He's basically saying, don't be deceived by the false teaching because of these two unfulfilled signs. So who is then this Antichrist figure, this man of lawlessness? The New Testament teaches us in 1 John 2.18 that there are many Antichrists in a certain sense. But John also teaches us that there is a culminating figure. Just to know that, to believe that, that's huge. Um, One man who is the end-time adversary of the church, and he will deceive many. Look at 1 John 2.18. I can read it to you. Dear children, this is the last hour, written 2,000 years ago. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. You're sitting just as the coming of the Messiah was foretold, so also we've been warned that an end-time adversary will come who will exalt himself over God. Verse 4, 2 Thessalonians, he will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped. So that he sets himself up, or literally sits, in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. But what does Paul mean when he says that the man of lawlessness will sit in God's temple to do his deceiving work? Christians of a dispensational persuasion, we talked about those brothers and sisters, believe this refers to the building of a literal, physical temple in Jerusalem, built on the site where the Muslim Dome of the Rock now stands, and that the Antichrist will set himself up in that reconstructed temple. I was having a good conversation last night with the the head teacher downstairs at the Winchevsky School. She's done her PhD and did a, a documentary, I think, actually on dispensationalism and foreign policy with America versus Israel, and, and, uh, and she gave me a very embarrassing movie to watch called Till Kingdom Come. I'll just put that out. You can find it on YouTube, perhaps, but it's, it's just 
is, is you're seeing there the foreign policy of America as it's being promoted by lobbyists, for sure, um, Christians who believe 100% about, you know, that wailing wall, that's the only part of the, of the of Herod's temple that's remaining, that needs to come down, and our, or the dome, the rock needs to come down where the Muslims worship, and actually another temple being, you know, created there, sacrifices starting up all over again, this is what dispensational Christians really want. So, I'll just leave, watch till kingdom come, it's very... Interesting. I'll put it that way. <laughs> However, there are serious problems with that view. I only have time to mention one problem, but it's formidable. The phrase God's temple or the temple of God, as it's used in the New Testament, won't allow us to interpret verse 4 in a literal physical sense. The phrase is found nine other times in the New Testament outside of 2 Thessalonians, and it is always... Without exception, it refers to either Christ or the church, every time. Not once in Paul's writings, and it comes up five other times outside of Thessalonians, not once in Paul's writings does it refer to a literal, physical temple in Israel, either in the past or in the future. And that's because temple is one of those themes that tie all of Scripture together. You've heard me preach on this many times. The concept of temple does not remain static. Its significance, its meaning changes over salvation history. We have to understand that. And as Bible-believing Christians, we don't want to remain stuck thinking that the ultimate temple, the type that Moses' tabernacle and Solomon's temple foreshadowed, is fulfilled in anything less than the body of Jesus Christ and his church. That is the uniform testimony of the New Testament. If you're feeling your theological oats, I recommend this book to you by G.K. Beale, The Temple and the Church's Mission. This is a fantastic book. It's very complex, but you can't go better than actually get a whole biblical theology of the temple when you read that book. But make sure you're eating lots of like vitamins before you take it. Um, and because Jesus is the New Testament temple of God, the meeting place between God and human beings, Paul can elsewhere refer to believers as the temple of God because we have believed Jesus and are identified with him as a part of his body. 1 Corinthians 3, 16 to 17. Do not, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and, that the, and God's spirit dwells in your midst? Don't you know that? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person for God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. Okay, that's, <laughs> there you have it right there, folks. 2 Corinthians 6.16. What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Right? The temple being referred to in 2 Thessalonians 2.4 is the church. It's the people of God. It's the body of Christ. And when Paul says the man of lawlessness sits in the temple of God, it's not a literal positioning of himself in the center of a physical temple on a chair or a throne. In the language of the Bible, sitting is a reference to ruling. Again, look at, just look at those texts in your PDF. Matthew 30.23.2. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you. Matthew 26, 64. I say to all of you, from now on you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the, majest- of the, of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Hebrews 1, 3. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful word. After He had provided purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. 
The book of Revelation uses the phrase sit on a throne approximately 15 times for God, Jesus, or Christians being in a position of authority. You city, I, I feel humbly confident in telling you that verses 3 and 4 of 2 Thessalonians 2 teach us that the latter-day enemy of God's people, the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, the beast from the sea, will come into the midst of the church and cause it to be predominantly apostate and unbelieving. This must happen before Jesus returns. Verse 4 tells us he sets himself up in God's temple proclaiming himself to be God. Now that could mean just how it sounds, that he makes himself out to be God, which is how the NIV takes it, which is the epitome of blasphemy. On the other hand, the idea may be that the man of lawlessness assumes so much influence and religious, religious authority in the worldwide community of faith that he may as well be calling himself God. There are certain ways in which he is sinning so intensely that he's putting himself in the place of God. For example, he changes God's laws as revealed in Scripture and teaches other laws that contradict divinely revealed truth. This is one reason why he is called the man of lawlessness. In essence, the Antichrist pretends to be the ultimate lawgiver, not Jesus. And the laws he gives contradicts the laws laid down by God in the Bible. You've probably heard this illustration, but if you put a frog in a pot of boiling water, it will leap out immediately, right, to escape the danger. But I've never tried this to prove it. But they say if you put a frog into a pot of water where the water is cool and it's pleasant, and then you gradually increase the heat. The frog will boil to death. And I'd say that's a pretty accurate picture of a giant swath of the evangelical church in the West today. It's a boiling frog. God has already told us how to live. He's told us what to believe. He's given us the Bible, our sacred touchstone, by which we evaluate everything, every teaching, but we're happy to live in water that's getting hotter and hotter and hotter. We're adapting, we're acclimatizing to false teaching. Why? Look at verse 7. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work. Brothers and sisters, our end times foe, our eschatological antagonist, has not physically appeared on the scene yet, but he is already inspiring his lawless works of deception through emissaries, the false teachers. False teachers are alive and well today in the church. If you want to see the secret power of lawlessness at work, look at churches that don't practice any kind of discipline. When church members are free to practice unrepentantly in immorality, this is clearly against scripture. It's lawlessness. It's the secret power of lawlessness at work when the church accepts other faiths when we say that the exclusivist claims of Christianity are too narrow and intolerant and God's love is bigger than all that. It's the secret power of lawlessness at work when the gospel is turned into a means of securing health and wealth. It's the secret power of lawlessness at work when the church domesticates the scripture to accommodate the culture on issues related to gender, marriage, and sexual immorality. It's the secret power of lawlessness at work when pastors tell their people the Bible has mistakes in it, even small, insignificant ones. It's the secret power of lawlessness at work when we deny the authority of Scripture over our lives. Paul says in verse 5, Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? 
So Paul's already told the Thessalonian church that Jesus won't return before the great rebellion and the man of sin is revealed. So what Paul's just told them here, it's nothing new. But the Thessalonian church is becoming vulnerable to false teaching because they're in the process of forgetting the truth that Paul already taught them. And that applies to us as well, right? When we know the truth, we know what God's word says, we have in our possession the genuine truth that Satan wants to pervert, and he's been following that same tactic for 2,000 years with great success. He's not about to stop now. He'll, be, uh, he'll begin by getting us to subtract something very small from the gospel, or he'll get us to add something, add something very small to the gospel. And if that's not checked by scriptural truth, we won't need anybody as grand as the culminating Antichrist himself to come along and deceive us with mighty miracles. We'll be easy prey for his henchmen, right? The false teachers. Though Antichrist hasn't come physically, he can still mislead spiritually. And Christians are not to relax our guard against his deceptive powers in the present. Christian, Don't be deceived. Beware of the already here, not yet come Antichrist. Look at verse 6. And now you know what is holding him back, so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way. Paul is telling the Thessalonians that the man of lawlessness has not yet come, but something is holding him back so that he may be revealed at the proper future time when God decides the time is right. God is absolutely sovereign over all of human history. Now, who or what this restrainer is, that's very hard to determine. The Thessalonian church, they know because Paul's already told them. So they're dealing with more information than we are. The two best options that I've heard are probably the Holy Spirit or civil government. But certainty is impossible. We just don't know. But whatever or whoever the restrainer is, it's clear that God is the ultimate power behind the restrainer because the restrainer will restrain only until the proper time, that time that's set by God. God brings history to its conclusion in his own timing. God decides when certain events take place that fulfill his eternal purposes. God decides when human history ends. In the meantime, the restrainer will continue to hold back the appearance of the Antichrist until taken out of the way. Friends, this is what's going to happen. It's a certain thing, so don't be deceived. Don't be deceived now, Paul says, and you'll avoid judgment later, verses 8 through 12. And that applies to professing Christians and non-Christians alike. Look at verse 9. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie. And all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Verse 11. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. Paul is now turning to what's going to happen exclusively in the future. What we're reading in these verses has not happened yet, but it will. It must happen before Jesus returns. The man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, the beast from the sea, will make his long-awaited appearance 
in order to deceive the church on a massive scale. G.K. Beale writes this, and just, I mean, for those of you who know, G.K. Beale is millennial, but he's what he says. While, this, this, while his deception in this present age is partial and incognito through false teachers, his deceit at the end of history will be anything but. The man of lawlessness will appear on the, on the stage of history incarnating Satan's character in his person more than any other person hitherto. Satan will empower him to do all kinds of counterfeit miracles and signs and wonders and every kind of deception leading to unrighteousness. And his followers will be further deceived and eventually judged. We need to be very careful to understand what this text is saying. Verse 10 says the man of lawlessness aims this deception at unbelievers who are perishing. And the reason they're perishing is also the reason why they will be deceived further and ultimately judged. Because, verse 10, they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. And because they refused to love the truth, God sends them powerful delusion so they will believe the lie and be condemned. Look look at verse 9 again. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie and all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing. That's saying he will use every kind of evil deception to fool those on their way to destruction. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. Human beings need to think about those verses very, very carefully and tremble before the Almighty God, right? You're seeing God's sovereignty, human responsibility in a very unembarrassed tension here in a very way way that's, I think it's difficult to wrap our minds around. But the powerful delusion God sends when the man of lawlessness performs his amazing miracles is part of his judgment against unbelievers for not responding to the gospel of his crucified and resurrected son. For those who disbelieve the truth of the gospel that would save their souls, God sends powerful delusion. God will cause them to be greatly deceived. They will believe lies, and then they will be condemned eternally for enjoying evil rather than believing the truth. We read that and we can see God is not mocked. The truth of the gospel is not mocked, and it is spurned, by human beings at the price of our eternal soul. And friend, if you enjoy evil, rather than believe the truth of what God's accomplished in the death and resurrection of Jesus for sin, if you refuse to believe the truth and so be saved, then sooner or later, God pronounces judgment by sending the delusion that you must prefer. In that final day, many unbelievers will be confirmed in their unbelief of the gospel. They'll be confirmed in it as miracles of an un unprecedented order utterly delude the perishing into thinking that the man of lawlessness speaks for God when in fact he speaks for Satan. His miracles will be marvelous. People won't be seeing anything evil or malevolent. This man isn't going to have horns and a tail. God sends the perishing a powerful delusion so that they believe the lie. Can you imagine how convincing such a delusion will be if it's the omnipotent God sending the delusion? What this means is that unbelievers must believe the truth of the gospel today. 
They must repent of their evil ways and follow Jesus as their Lord and Savior today. But Christians can read a text like this and fear for the future. I think especially as this text is connected to other texts in Scripture that speak of a culminating persecution against the people of God, the final tribulation, a persecution of God's people at the hands of this man of lawlessness, the end-time foe of the church. But don't despair. What did Jesus say in John 16, 33? In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Look at verse 8 of 2 Thessalonians 2. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth. And that's an allusion to Isaiah 11.4, where the prophet says that the branch from Jesse, the Messiah, will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and the breath of his lips, and will slay the wicked. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. Right? So Christian, stand firm. Persevere to the very end. This is how it ultimately ends up here. In spite of all the divine pretensions of the man of lawlessness, in spite of all of his supernatural power and miracles that supposedly accredit him for speaking for God, and by which he deceives the entire world, the Lord Jesus will triumph over him and strip him of all of his power. Jesus will kill him on the day of his return. The language used in the Greek text is not merely that he will be overthrown from his position of power, but that he will be killed violently and his power broken. And that, of course, will establish the way of the afflicted, persecuted Christians as the followers of the one true religion and children of the one true God. Our despised faith will receive glorious honor. Our despised Savior will receive glorious honor. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among those who have believed. This includes you because you believed our testimony to you. Right? That's just the chapter before. So Christian, stand firm. Stand firm in the truth of the gospel. I'm not, I'm not going to unpack this, but do you see where Paul goes with this? Look at verse 13. But we, always, we ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord, because God chose you as firstfruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast to the teachings, the true teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, our Father, who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. And so we pray, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Okay, you were very patient. That was 40 minutes of just me talking. There's time for Q&A though. Any questions, anything you'd like clarified? Again, guys, there's the, the Daniel stuff is... 
more explained in the handout at the very back. And, uh, but the PDF that was sent out the email is what we're looking at today. Thoughts? Can I just throw out a random thought? <laughs> um, we did a test at the first of the series where I said, do you think Jesus could come in theory, theologically, the next five seconds? And about half the class said yes. Now, I'm not sure if you're there yet where you're like, oh, I'm convinced now John's changed my mind. But I, I, I would wonder, though, um, having heard this today, would you believe in an accommodating Antichrist figure? Have you, have you ever thought of this, maybe? Um, have you looked at this text before in such detail? Where, where are you at on that? And, and does the idea scare you? And you'd rather... It's so, it's so much easier to believe two things. One, the church is going to be secretly raptured, and we're going to miss all of this. I mean, that sounds great. Or that we did, like this whole age of the church is whatever, you know, that she just could return the next five seconds. This has been fulfilled, as some believe, maybe in the, the Catholic Pope. So he is the Antichrist. There's persecution, right? And like, so Jesus could still come the next five seconds. And that's all. But actually, there isn't this culminating figure where there's great apostasy and rebellion and, and a lot of miracles. Like, what do you, you know, there's, a, there's an appeal to that. I understand it. Um, where are you at? I'm just kind of curious. Yeah, I was, I was totally pretty sure, but I'm convinced you convinced me that it's supposed to. <laughs> <laughs> so you're, you're a... Well, okay. Okay. <laughs> it is... What, I'll just keep... I'll go back to that. Any, any more about that? Just... Are you still... I mean, I'm not, I'm not asking for an absolute decision right now. I'm just wondering your thoughts on the Antichrist. Have you thought that there could be such a figure? The one John Yes. He is. An idea of one, a reality of many. Yes. Um, so it's whether you think that he's saying um, change your opinion and think that one is actually many, or he's saying there are many in advance of the one. You see what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, I yeah. don't know if I'm the grammar to, to say We're going to get to some of that later on in our series. I'm just I'm doing it piecemeal, brick by brick, <laughs> laying the groundwork. I, I want. It's important that you guys know where I'm coming from. Obviously, I mean, and you're only going to. I don't think you heard me preach sermons on becoming Antichrist. I don't think that in 15 years I've preached this text before, um, kind of preparing it. I want kind of again. That's part of the snowball for me rolling down the hill. I need to know about this kind of this kind of stuff. So, but I do believe that there is a culminating Antichrist figure. And there's going to need to be vigilance in that day. There's going to have to be a very clear understanding of what the gospel is and who we're trusting in. Um, the, the language that's used uh, in this about he exalts himself over everything that is called God and worshipped. That's every, that, to me, I mean, you, I don't know how far you want to push that, but if you actually push that, it sounds like it's saying everybody, everybody on the planet, Muslims, Jews, professing Christians, every religion you can think of, will actually think this guy speaks for God. 
And everything that's worshipped as God, he will exalt himself over that. It's not just, it's not just this, the Christians are being deceived or, or the professing Christians. Um, I think if we're going to see astounding things, like tremendous miracles, that's, what, that's what's being prophesied here. Where it's like, okay, I don't know what that would look like, but let's just solve all world hunger, world peace, fire coming from heaven, doing this, doing that, who knows what. And it's just like, this guy speaks for God. It's obvious. It's just live on CNN, or I can see it in the skies myself. I, I, I think it'll be pretty, pretty spectacular. And Christians will be the holdout, saying, this guy is denying the gospel. We're believing in the crucified and resurrected Christ. This guy is incarnating the character of Satan. We see this. It's scary in that sense. Because it, it is. reminds us that we can be deceived. Yeah. Uh, yep, go ahead. No, no, two things. First, um, we're going to start the comments first and then the question. Um, like, for what you did today, I think it helped me a lot to, <laughs> I would say, picture better. Mm. Because you know our background, where we're coming from, what we used to believe. Mm. But also, uh, I have even heard that it could be, like you said, Paul or even Justin Trudeau. And I'm not kidding about that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, thinking about that, it's uh, about just about the temple. I think make us uh, like here to, to, to think at least where it could be coming from. You know, it's not someone maybe a political figure, but something really different. Mm -hmm. so that's the first thing. And second, uh, I'm wondering if. Uh, I, I was trying to look for the verse when the Lord said that even the elect would be deceived. Yeah. Is this referring to the same or? Yeah. Uh, in, Ma in Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. If it were possible, even the elect. You know. Yeah. Which, again, pause for thought right there, right? Yeah. Careful. I know you're not saying this. Just be careful, though. We don't mentioned this in the past. Don't have a Canadian-centric view of this, right? I mean, most of our brothers and sisters throughout church history have been tremendously persecuted. We live in this blip of geography and history where things are pretty good here in Canada. Justin Trudeau being the Antichrist, you know, beside <laughs> it. It's actually things are good, really good. Try living anywhere else 100 years ago. And it's just like, it sucked. And there's people that are... Um, they're, they're experiencing this now, in that sense, with, with the many Antichrists who have come. You know, and I think you could put popes and stuff into the Pope Innocent III and stuff. Like, for sure, Hitler, whatever you want to put in there. Many anti persecution against the church. We'll look at this more, but then there's a culminating Antichrist figure. Um, just so you know, as a, as well, I'll close with this. I think you are seeing a lot of Daniel in here. I think that's where he's going back to, and I think that's what Paul 
was talking about to the Thessalonians. He wasn't just saying, here's fresh revelation from God. Um, it's actually saying, I'm executing Daniel for you. And so if you take that thing home, it's very complex, but you'll see where, it's, where I'm coming from. It's, it's a lot of it's based on this excellent book, The Clouds of Heaven. When I preached through Daniel, this was my biggest help. Um, I thought it was by uh, James M. Hamilton Jr. So there are sermons. There's a sermon series on the online that you can listen to. Um, I, I, I preached that. That's actually from a sermon outline. So, um, so take that, do with it as you will. And, uh, and then next week, there is no Sunday school, right? It's the clawback. And the week after, we're going to be looking at uh, Romans 11 and uh, Israel. All right. Thanks, guys.